Thanks for tuning in to the Sojourn Church Podcast. We are a church committed to the gospel in the context of family, living on mission to the city of Portland and our world. For more information, visit our website, sojournpdx.org. Good morning, everyone. It is uh, good to see you, kind of. I know that we're back online, at least for this week, as uh, 2020 continues to throw things our way. I, I hope you enjoyed the week of rest that we had last week, uh, where we intentionally did that. That's one reason I, we did not want to cancel this gathering. Uh, we just really weren't sure what it was going to look like or what to do as the smoke has moved in. Um, obviously, there are people who have lost their homes and all of their belongings, people who've had to evacuate who really just aren't sure. And so I know that you're keeping up with all of that. Uh, some of you might be joining us online today who don't live on the West Coast. And so you've probably been watching the news. And just please keep praying for us. Keep praying for those who have lost everything. Uh, pray for the firefighters, those who are putting their lives at risk to fight these fires. And then pray for rain. Uh, I think normally in the Pacific Northwest, we would be praying that it would not rain yet and that we could enjoy the last days of summer. But guys, we need rain. So be, join us in desperately um, as we pray for rain. Uh, here's what we're going to do today. Uh, we've been working through the book of Philippians uh, through the summer months, and we have gone verse by verse, and we finished chapter three two weeks ago. And so we're going to start chapter four this morning. And as a brief refresher, what Paul has shown us so far is that um, what makes Christianity unique is not so much about what we can do for Christ. I think if you're anything like me and you grew up in church, that was kind of your mentality is, how can I do this much for Christ and what can I do for Christ? And that's what Christianity is all about. But really what it's about is what Christ has already done for us. And then what he has done in this book is he has shown us what it looks like to practically live out our faith after you come to Jesus. And so this morning, what Paul's going to do is he's going to uh, land the plane, so to speak. So a lot of it's been kind of up high, and he's going to get down on a ground level. And he's going to come in and show us what it practically looks like to, be, to have contentment in all things, which is actually what I've titled this, this message, is contentment in all things. Now, we must remember the context of this passage. The Philippian church was considered a great church. Um, it was actually considered a really impressive church by many accounts. If you think about some of the other letters that Paul wrote and to the churches that he wrote these letters to, the, the Philippian church was like the, the A student and the, the, the gold star. But even this church had its struggles. And we must not forget that. that this church, too, had ongoing struggles with sin, and they had ongoing need for correction from the Word of God, and just like we do this morning, Sojourn Church and Eastbridge Church. And so what Paul's going to do in this final section, uh, we'll have this week and then uh, next week we should finish up chapter four and be finished with Philippians. But he's going to start out this final section by exhorting the believers in Philippi. He's going to then come in and encourage the believers in Philippi. And then finally, he's going to finish by praying for the believers in Philippi. And so by Philippians 4 uh, verse 1, Paul begins to wrap up this letter and he confronts one specific case of disunity in the church. So we're going to see um, this, this idea. We've kind of hinted at it all throughout this letter. But this week specifically, he's going to come in and we're going to see him dress head on this, um, this unity that's happening in the church at Philippi. And he's going to provide the believers of that church and all of us with concrete directives for how it is that we are to deal with conflict. So if you've ever felt like you've dealt with conflict in the church or, or maybe you feel like you're dealing with some right now, Paul's going to come in and say, hey, I've got the answer. I've got the solution to that problem of that conflict that you're having and, and maybe that disunity that you're sensing that will help you get unified in Christ. 
He then turns at the end of uh, the part that we're going to look at this morning. He gives them a series of commands, which in many ways is going to summarize the material from the entire letter that we have looked at over the last several months. And so go ahead, if you have your copy of Scripture and you haven't already, turn with me to the book of Philippians, uh, chapter 4. will be in verse 1. Once again, Philippians 4, verse 1. While you're turning there, let me pray for us before we get started in the Word. God, we come to you again and just thank you that uh, we have the opportunity to gather as your church, as your bride. Uh, and God, we thank you that we live in a day where there is technology, and although this is an ideal, that we can pivot on um, really towards the end of a week and, and just make a wise decision. Obviously, we couldn't gather outside with the air quality and, and parks are closed, and um, God just trying to figure out the wisdom of making those decisions. And God, even that, I just think about the, um, not that that is not important, but I think about all those who are being impacted by the fires that are happening around us, God, that those who have had to flee their home, some people have returned back to their towns and realizing that the town is gone, that their house is gone, that their belongings are gone. And so, God, I do thank you that none of us are in that situation. It's possible some of us know people who are in that situation. So, God, we do just pray that, um, one, that you would provide for those people. And that as a church, as we learn about opportunities and needs, that we can help meet those. God, I pray for the firefighters and, and for those who are putting their lives um, at risk to put out these fires. God, I do pray that they can be contained. God, I do pray that, that we know that, that you can uh, cause these fires to be um, stifled out. And God, we pray for rain, something that normally this time of year we're, we're kind of not looking forward to because we know we're getting many months of it. But God, we do pray for rain, that the rain could come in um, and, and even earlier than it's projected just to help put these fires out. And God, I ask now that you'd be with us during this time. They're sitting in our living rooms or our kitchen tables. And God, that we would um, open our hearts, open our eyes, open our ears, and be attentive to your word as you speak to us this morning. In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. All right, so Philippians 4, verse 1. Um, what I want you to do as we look at this first verse is notice how Paul, he piles up these tender expressions to convey his love for the Philippians in this opening, uh, what I call this transitional verse. So verse 1, he says, Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm, thus in the Lord, my beloved. So what we see here is Paul, for, for what he calls his joy and his crown, is, and he's talking about really for his life, is the spiritual success of the Philippians. In other words, like kind of their, this idea of their sanctification, of, of them persevering through life after they've come to Christ, and, and that he says, this will be my joy and my crown. I think about my, my own father, who um, one of, he's told me and my sisters that his, one of his joys and crowns of life was that First off, that the three of us would uh, go to college and graduate college, you know, and, and that college isn't for everyone, but that was one of his goals, that he would love to see his kids do that, and we all three did that. And then he wanted us to, to all three um, get married to spouses who love the Lord, and, and we all three did that. He said those are some of the joys and crowns of his life, and so I can see Paul saying the same thing to the Philippians, that he's writing this from prison, but he's saying this will give me joy, and this will be the, the crown of my life by seeing you persevere through the trials of life as you stand firm in your faith. And so he says, the Philippians are to stand firm in the Lord. And think about it, it's only with Jesus that we can resist the temptations and weaknesses of life. So what does this mean for us? So he's telling the Philippians to stand firm. But what about for you and me, 2020? What does that look like? Paul is telling us to endure. So grab that word endure, write it down if you need to. He's saying endure in the midst of life's storms. 
instead of putting the majority of your energy towards standing firm, this is what most of us tend to do. Most of us, when we, when we sense there's going to be a storm in life, whether that's a relationship with somebody or whether it's uh, something to do with our job or just whatever it is, what we typically try to do is we focus on what we can do to avoid the circumstances or to find a way out of that. We will avoid that conversation that we know we need to have. Okay, um, I can say as a spouse, there's times I avoid conversations I need to have with my wife, or I know that she wants to have with me, and so I'll find any way to get out of that. And so I think that's what what most of us, we kind of land there. We say we want to do whatever we can to get out of this circumstance. But when we look back at at what this verse has just said, and then we look ahead at what follows, we have to look at the full context of the passage. And so in light of all that has been said, especially when you look back at chapter 3, verses 17 through 21, Paul urges the church to stand firm. In other words, to stick with it, to endure, to never give up on the Christian walk. It's an appeal to persevere in light of our heavenly citizenship. And so many of us, we encounter the storms of life that lead us to being stressed out. And we typically think the solution is to leave and go somewhere else. So maybe you've you've found yourself in the middle of a storm of life Maybe part of that's 2020, and and usually your solution is, I'm just going to escape this. I'm just going to leave this. I don't have to put up with this. So I'm going to escape and go somewhere where these storms do not exist. Here's the thing. You will never find a place like that. Maybe temporarily you'll find some some relief, but you're never going to find a place that will ultimately rid you of the storms of life. You may have even moved to Portland as part of this. You may have said, you know what, I'm going to escape wherever it is that I'm living because there's it's just chaos, my relationships or, or my job or just what, my situation is just a bad situation. And so you move to Portland. That's not why I moved to Portland, but I think about myself moving from the East Coast and I kind of wipe the slate clean so I can move to Portland and all my dreams and aspirations can now come true and I can leave these storms behind me in the rearview mirror. And, and that does happen for a season, but then what happens now? If you've been in Portland for a year or two years or if you've just been here for 2020, you've experienced life storms. And so maybe now you're going, well, maybe I'll move to San Francisco. Now, guys, I'm not trying to leave Portland, but San Francisco is towards the top of my list if I were to leave. Or, or maybe say, I want to go to San Diego, because San Diego doesn't get all the, even though we need the rain right now, they don't get all the rain that we get, and it just seems like a really pleasant place to live. But Paul's going to show us it's not about managing your life circumstances. It's not about escaping the storms of life. But he's saying, how is it that you can stand firm and endure whenever circumstances like this come your way? And so the solution to all these things is not being able to change your circumstances. He says the solution to these things is being able to learn how to endure and how to stand firm in the midst of the storm. Chasing after a new job or a new roommate or a new spouse or a new city, those things might work for three to six months. Sure, you can find a temporary relief and kind of a, you'll have a honeymoon phase where everything seems fine and dandy and great. But the problem's going to occur time and time again. And Paul wants us to have a long-term plan for our life, not just a temporary one. Paul doesn't want us to have a three-month plan where things seem to be better until they get worse. He wants us to have a long-term plan. G.W. Hansen, um, his commentary on the book of Philippians, he points out these uh, parallels that provide guidelines for the definition of the imperative to stand firm. He says, first, we stand firm as citizens of heaven. And so you've got to think really as a church, as a body of believer, we are a community of exiles and that we are to remain steadfast in our loyalty and obedience to our government in heaven. In other words, to the will of God. 
Second, we stand firm in our commitment to the cross of Christ in the face of those who oppose us as enemies of the cross. And so our ultimate commitment should to be, be to Jesus and to the cross and to that message, regardless of the opposition that we may face. And third, we stand firm by being united in one mind and one spirit. And then he's talking about us as the church. We cannot stand firm if we are divided and if we are alone. So that's why there's no Lone Ranger Christianity. That's why I'm a firm believer in the local church. And he says whereas we can stand firm when we are linked arm in arm, heart in heart in our community of brothers and sisters. And so to stand firm in the Lord means that we remain strong and resolute in union with our Lord by exhibiting the Lord, His Lordship over our lives, by following our Lord's way to the cross, and by walking in unity with each other in our corporate union with our Lord. Now, in verse 2, Paul's going to call for a, for a final call of unity. Once again, we've seen this theme of unity throughout this entire book, but he's going to come in in verse 2, and what we're going to see is there's been obvious some kind of disagreement that has taken place between two ladies. And so Paul's going to come in, look at verse 2 with me. He says, I entreat Eudea and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Now, Paul does not reveal the source of the tension between these two ladies. He doesn't, he doesn't go into all the details. Like all, most of us want the, the bloody gory details, right? We want to know what happened. What, you know, this is kind of the water cooler chat. Like, what happened? Are you texting somebody? What went on? Well, Paul doesn't give us all that information. Maybe it'd been helpful if he did, but he did not. But what he does do is he's, he exhorts them to apply the principle stated in chapter 2, verse 2, to agree and then and be of the same mind. And so Paul tells them, you need to agree in the Lord. Think about it this way. There can be no unity unless it is in Christ. These two weren't going to find unity apart from Christ. People can never really love each other until they love Christ. And human fellowship uh, is ultimately impossible without the lordship of Christ. Now, to be of the same mind doesn't mean that you throw out solid doctrine. It doesn't mean that you just say, well, just believe whatever you want, and it's okay if it's contrary to Scripture. That's not what Paul's advocating for here. Nor does he tell them to agree on absolutely everything, including their preferences. He doesn't say you have to dress the same way. He doesn't even say you have to vote the same way or that you have to belong to the same political party. There's preferences that, that there's some freedom to do there. But what Paul is encouraging these two ladies to do is to have a common attitude of Christ and a gospel-centeredness that is intent on the same goal. So in other words, what does it look like for you two, and then what does it look like for us as a church to go after the same goal, the same mission, even with some different preferences? Maybe you have a different worship style preference, and maybe you have a different clothing style preference, and maybe you're going to vote differently than someone else, or maybe your response to, to COVID and some of the race conversations, or, or, or even how we help with the wildfire. Maybe your response is a little bit different, but that we have the same commonality and the same goal in Christ that we're going after. And Paul continues in verse 3. He says, Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. And once again, we don't know the nature of the details of the disagreement between these two ladies, but the plea is to agree in the Lord, and this should remind us that the unity or the lack thereof has been no small concern in Philippians. And because every believer is in Christ, we see that phrase quite a bit, believers are in Christ together. Communion with Christ includes communion with others in the body of Christ, the church. So once again, there is no lone range of Christianity. There is no, it's just me, just me and Jesus. It is just you and Jesus, but it's also you and Jesus and the body of believers that he gave you. 
So it's probably a good idea that we start liking one another and getting along with one another. Now, of course, this doesn't mean that there won't be disagreements. So if you think, oh no, I've had a disagreement, that's okay. There will be disagreements. It doesn't mean there won't be conflicts among Christians, even mature Christians and experienced Christians. We see that these two, Paul said they had labored side by side with him. These were strong leaders in the church, and yet there was this disagreement, and the disagreement rose such to a level that Paul wanted to call it out, <coughs> excuse me, in front of the entire church. In front of the entire church. So imagine with me this morning, if we were all actually together in person and not online, and I'm delivering this word, and maybe you're taking notes, and you're paying attention, and maybe you're even saying amen, and all of a sudden I call two of your names out and say, you two are in conflict right now. Now, how awkward would that be? What, I mean, you're, you're probably like really glad we're not in person right now in case I'd be calling your name out. But Paul had no problem doing that. He calls him to the floor and says, look, you two can't get along. You need to get along. And your church body is calling you to accountability in this matter. So what we see is concerns will have to be discussed. Confessions will eventually have to be made. And forgiveness will have to be granted. But the relationship themselves are often complicated. And so Paul calls on a true companion, which is, who's unknown to us, doesn't say who this is. Obviously, it's known to the Philippians and it's known to Paul to help these women. In other words, Paul brings in a third party to help almost be like a mediator to say, hey, maybe they're not listening to Paul. And so maybe this third person who they're all familiar with, maybe you'll listen to this third party. So he brings in a third party to help these women get along. Kent Hughes says the apostle didn't lay out a precise remedy for, for these two ladies, but he handed it over to the church family in Philippi. He gave them tender guidelines and was diplomatic and encouraging. And so as members of this church family, as members of the church, we must eagerly maintain the unity of the Spirit. Now, what keeps us, modern day, what keeps us from reconciling people? Here's what I think it is. Most of us have a fear of what we call um, meddling in things that aren't our business. If you're, if you're not sure, like, what's that word meddling, Matt? Where'd you get that from? Messing. We're, we're not fans of maybe messing other people's business. We're going to say, hey, that's their business. That's their family. That's their thing. That doesn't uh, involve me at all. And there's a truth to that. But there's a difference, and please stick with me here. Listen, there's a difference between meddling for the sake of meddling. In other words, a difference between messing with things for the sake of messing and, and gossiping and trying to destroy things. And then seeking for a gospel-centered reconciliation. So if you're meddling just for the sake of meddling, don't do it. But if you're meddling for the sake of gospel-centered reconciliation, then Paul is calling us to do that. He said, it is the church's business because you are part of the body. And your sin affects every single one of us, the whole body. So think of it this way. The way that you live your life, that's why it's not just you and Jesus. The way that you live your life, if you've connected yourself to a body of believers called the church, whether you're part of Eastbridge or Sojourn, and then there's some ways that we're part of this universal church, what you do day in and day out affects every single one of us. It affects every single part of the body. Because remember, we all kind of have a different function, a different role to play. And so it is the church's business when it's, and when it's talking about gospel-centered reconciliation because what you do and what I do matters to the entire body. And Paul, as a result, he has no problem alerting the church to the problem. Paul has no problem calling it out in front of everyone. He has no problem asking for a third person to come in and help mediate it. Not because Paul is some kind of gossip, but because, not because he wants to cause problems, but it's because Paul loves the church. Paul's, Paul's giving up his life for this church. And he wants to see it healthy and he wants to see it flourishing. So I think there's a couple of things we should note from these opening verses. The first, 
to me, it's pretty significant that when we see a, a quarrel like this at Philippi, that Paul doesn't sweep it under the rug. He doesn't pretend that it doesn't exist. But what he does is he mobilizes the whole body to mend the problem. He, he didn't think it was too great of an effort to involve the entire church in this process. And so sometimes I think in, in, in the church, modern day church, I'm not speaking about one of our churches necessarily, but just in the church broadly in the U.S., I think sometimes we need to do this. I think a lot of times we do just sweep things under the rug and just pretend they don't exist until maybe they blow up in our face. I think Paul would say, no, you need to stop. As soon as you recognize something, you need to stop and address it as a body together so that you can be reconciled to God and one another and then continue on as a church where you're healthy and flourishing. The second thing that I took note here is that all we really know about these two ladies is that they had a quarrel. This just made me think, like, if your life had to be summed up in one sentence or maybe a paragraph, of just kind of what it is that you were known for, what would it be? Hopefully it's not that you go down in history as, as, the, as the one of two people who are causing a quarrel within the church. So just kind of the, this idea of our legacy. And so here's what I want to do, church. I want to encourage awkward conversations. Go ahead and have awkward conversations. Because if you're going to be in a genuine, authentic relationship with someone else, you will have conflict. If you're, if you're in an authentic, genuine relationship with somebody else and you're not having conflict, then it's probably not authentic and it's probably not genuine. One of you is being fake because all good relationships, all healthy relationships have a healthy form of conflict. Now, I'm not saying that you want to have constant arguments and constant fights. That's unhealthy as well. But there's going to be some rub whenever you're in an authentic relationship with somebody. And so go ahead and have, for the good of the church and for the glory of Christ, have these awkward conversations. I would advocate that almost needs to be part of our our normal aspect as a Christ follower. And that we come together, that we seek to, to submit to the Lordship of Christ and put on the mind of Christ and deal with the issue. Here's why. Because if we don't do that, what does that do? It causes divisions in the church. And divisions not only damage the body internally to where we are almost rotting from the inside out, but it also affects our witness to the city of Portland and to our entire world. <coughs> excuse me, nobody wants to join a group of people who can't stand one another. Nobody wants to join a group of people who don't even want to be together themselves. I wouldn't want to. And so this idea of disunity, it distracts from the mission of the church and it creates a sideways energy where we're focusing on all of these arguments, all of these things that we could have addressed many, many months earlier. And, and now it's taking away from the furtherment of the advancement of the gospel and why we've come together as a church anyway. So have awkward conversations. Now, in starting verse four through nine, we're going to see Paul call the Philippians to an attitude of joy and reason. He's going to call us, um, he's going to show us how to replace anxiety with expectant, grateful prayer. And he's going to call them to think upon and practice Christian virtues. So look at verse 4 with me. He says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Now notice how Paul finds it necessary once again, he's, he's hit on joy throughout this letter, but he finds it necessary again to issue a command to rejoice. Not only does it say it once, is it two times in this verse. And the, the joy that Paul calls for, it's, it's not this happiness that depends on life circumstances. If that were the case, I don't know if any of us would be happy in 2020. So Paul isn't saying rejoice because of COVID and because racism still exists and because there's wildfires happening everywhere or because your kids are doing virtual school. Paul's not saying rejoice because of those things, because that would be based on our life circumstances. Paul's saying rejoice 
based on a deep contentment that is the Lord, based on a trust in the sovereign living God, and that therefore is always available to us, even in difficult times. So our joy is based on the circumstances that don't change, which is the Lord. If you remember back in James, the very first chapter, he talks about this very same idea. And how is it that you can have joy in the Lord even when there's nothing joyful happening around you? And the, the command to rejoice in the Lord always extends this theme of joy and it re, it's rejoicing developed throughout the letter. And, and every time we see it referenced throughout Philippians, it's, it's tied to a specific reason or context for the joy. The, the, the command to rejoice always in the Lord in verse 4 calls for a thoughtful response to the circumstances and reason for joy. So if you look back just up for the couple of verses prior, the reconciliation of two estranged friends, two, two fellow um, Christ followers in the Lord, sisters in the Lord, that is reason for joyful celebration. I think many things that rob us of joy. Many, many things can rob us of joy. I mean, 2020, we can just continue to list off things. And notice what Paul says about rejoicing. He doesn't say rejoice in the Lord when your circumstances are going well. He says rejoice in the Lord always. And so church, what does it look like to rejoice in the Lord always, even when our circumstances aren't going well, even when life is not going how we planned it to go, even when our year looks entirely different than what we planned it in our calendar book that we, back in January? How does it look to rejoice in the Lord Always. And I think to me, this is part of what our world is looking for, and really with that idea of what sets us apart as Christ followers, is we are dealing with all of the same stuff of life that every other person we know is dealing with, that our neighbors are dealing with, our coworkers and our friends are dealing with. But I think as Christ followers, that, that's one of the things that sets us apart is that there's still some kind of this rejoicing in the Lord always, even in the midst of these circumstances, that should cause the people around us to go, what in the world? Matt, why can you still rejoice? How do you still have joy knowing everything that's happened in 2020 alone. And I can point back and say, you know what? I have those same emotions and feelings and thoughts that you do, and I've been affected in many of the same ways, but I have rejoicing in the Lord because of what the Lord has done, not based on the circumstances that are surrounding my life currently. And then we're ultimately looking to an ultimate future as citizens of heaven. Pick up in verse five. Paul says, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. And so Paul calls them this, this idea of reasonableness, which is it's crucial for maintaining community. It's, it's at the disposition that seek what is best for everyone, not just for one's self. <coughs> Excuse me. Many people think that Philippians is about joy. Now, we just looked at a verse in verse 4 that talked about joy. But many people think that that is what the book is about. And it, it is a, a big theme in the book, but primarily the book is about priorities, which is why we've titled our whole series Priorities. In this case, is doing what is good and prioritizing what is good for the greater good of the whole, not just for yourself. In the authorized version, it says it this way, let your moderation be known to all men. And so this idea that we are living our lives in such a way that we're thinking about, in this case, the whole entire body. And so you think about these two ladies. They were obviously prioritizing something in their own lives that were affecting the entire church. And Paul's saying, no, Make your decisions based on how it's going to affect the entire body of Christ. I think about our brother Ricardo who came in just a few weeks ago and talked about what has he lost for the sake of Christ. And kind of that idea is and sometimes we're going to have to lose things for the sake of Christ and for the sake of the church. And then he's going to continue on in verse 6 and, and really deal with something that, that I think is very prevalent in our day and age. He says, do not be anxious about anything. 
but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And so Paul comes in, in verse 6, and he's echoing the teachings of Jesus from the Sermon on the Mount in, in the book of Matthew. He says that believers are not to be anxious, but we are to entrust ourselves into the hands of our Heavenly Father, whose peace will guard our hearts in Christ Jesus. How can, how can he do this? How is this possible? Because God is sovereign, big word, overall, knows all, controls all. God is sovereign, he's in control, and Christians can entrust all of their difficulties to him. God who, who rules over all of creation and who is wise and loving in all of his ways. And as a result, we can have an attitude of thanksgiving that contributes directly to this inward peace. Now, I want to think about this call to reality. You might hear this verse and think, Paul, you don't know what we're dealing with in 2020. You don't know what we're dealing with in modern life. There's no way that I can't be anxious, especially millennials and Gen Z. I mean, there's studies out there just so much, how much more anxiety we have compared to the previous generations. Now, I think a big part of that's technology. I think a lot of that's social media and just this pressure to perform. But there's a call to reality. Paul isn't saying don't be worried about these things, okay? I think there's this idea of anxiety that, that cripples us, but he's not saying ignore the realities around you. We just passed 9-11, and so terrorist attacks happen. Paul isn't saying ignore those. Pandemics, as we all know now, aren't just for the movies. So Paul isn't saying just ignore that. <clears throat> Loss of job, as our, our friend Joseph told us a couple weeks ago, him and his wife both lost their job. Loss of job is a real thing. He's not saying just, just ignore that. Wildfires happen and they destroy people's lives, not just beautiful forests. And so we'd be foolish to ignore these things. So I don't think Paul's saying, don't be anxious and just, hey, let's pretend that these things don't exist and walk around with big smiles on our face and laughing all the time. We'd be foolish to ignore these realities. But what he is saying is even in the midst of that reality, that the Lord is at hand. The Lord is still working, even when you don't see it. So it's this idea of saying, God, we believe, but help our unbelief. But yes, we believe that you're in control and we believe that you are sovereign over all these things, but there's still these areas, and that's where my anxiety comes in, that I'm struggling to, to believe. And so, Lord, I do believe, but help my unbelief. And here's how Paul tells us to deal with our anxiety as Christ followers. It's not about going out and getting some medicine. It's not about sleeping more. It's not about being off social media more, although all those things might help. Paul sees a Christian's battle of anxiety as being fought with prayer. Being fought with prayer. Going to the one who is sovereign over all. And, and we pray because God is sovereign, not because we are not. That, that we lack the power at the most difficult times. We lack the wisdom to know what is best for our lives. We, we lack that perspective that God has to know the bigger picture of what's happening. I and mean, I think I think 21, we're all like, okay, God, let me get down on my knees and pray because I don't know what you're doing. I don't know what's happening. And so whether explicitly spoken or not, anxiety, what is anxiety doing? Anxiety is signaling a discontentment with God's plan. It's signaling a lack of confidence in God's plan. Our, our fretting, our, our stress implies that God doesn't see, God doesn't care, and, and that God can't change things. And so our, our anxious hearts, what do they do? Our anxious hearts turn inward rehashing the problems with self and almost as if a form of self-help or self-prayer, that we start looking to ourself for the answer. Now, I've told you guys this before. I try to be transparent, even from the pulpit, that 
One of my probably weaker spiritual disciplines is prayer. I'm naturally a doer. I like to wake up to my alarm, make a cup of coffee, and then if it's a meeting, go to a meeting. Or if it's emails or sermon prep, I just like to dive in. Because I feel like oftentimes when I'm praying that I'm, I don't feel like I'm doing anything. I don't feel like I'm accomplishing anything. I think that's the point. And then if you're like me, sometimes I'll jump in my day and if I check an email or those social media posts and all of a sudden all kinds of anxieties can come and just run the start of my day. And saying, go to God with all of your worries, with all of your troubles and give those over to him. And so Paul stresses that we can take everything to God in prayer. As has been beautifully put, there is nothing too great for God's power and nothing too small for his fatherly care. I think about my children. I'm a father of three. You guys will see my kids running around at the church and the park gatherings. And there's nothing. My kids have confidence. Now, I don't have an answer to all of it. They think I do. My oldest son thinks I could play for the Portland Trailblazers. He thinks I'm that good at basketball, and I'm not. But it's great that as a kid, they feel like they can come to me with any of their needs and that I'll be there for them. There's nothing too great. No, no anxiety is overtaking them. And we can go to God the same way. We can go to God with all of our needs. So I don't think Paul's saying, okay, pretend your anxiety doesn't exist. He's saying, no, recognize that it does exist and take it to God with one another. Ask for each other for help as well. He also says we can bring our prayers, our petitions, and our requests to God. We can pray for ourselves. So yes, we can pray for, for our forgiveness for our past. We can pray for, for, for what's happening in the present, what we see right in front of us, and then we can even pray for guidance for the future. And so that's actively something that we should be doing. Especially, you know, I'm not thinking about just planting a church. I'm like, okay, God, I can see what's presently happening. We're still in a pandemic. Now there's wildfires. We're getting towards the end of warm season, so I'm not sure about meeting in the park anymore. And I just need wisdom. And God, give me guidance. Help guide our church for the future. And then third thing is Paul lays it down with that Thanksgiving must be the universal accompaniment of prayer. And so Paul insists that we must give thanks in everything, knowing that God is working. That is part of the whole trust and faith piece, is that, God, I don't necessarily see it. I don't know how you're working even in the midst of what we're seeing right now this week. But God, I'm going to trust you. I thank you and I submit to you because I know that you're working. It's almost almost declaring that, God, we know that you're working. We trust that you're working and we thank you that you are in control. I mean, I even think about the wildfires, as horrible as those are, that it could even be worse. And and, and for those of us in Portland, maybe we feel privileged in a sense, but God, that you've protected Portland. That it's gotten gotten close, but God, it could have even been worse. William Barclay, he says that when we pray, we must always remember three things. We must remember the love of God, which only ever desires what is best for us. We must remember the wisdom of God, which alone knows what is best for us. We must remember the power of God, which alone can bring about that which is best for us. Everyone who prays with a perfect trust in the love, wisdom, and power of God will find God's peace. And so although I struggle with prayer as being one of my stronger disciplines in the faith, As a friend of mine recently reminded me, he said, Matt, prayer is the ceasing of action. Why? Where you are moved out of the way and you allow God to work and do only what he can do. And so maybe you're like me or maybe I'm alone where I'm I'm, sometimes my posture, I would never say this, my posture was more like I know better than God. And so maybe maybe the challenge to myself and if you're like me is that that prayer is the ceasing of action. It's, it's, It's giving up on our will and saying, God, I truly want your will to be done and I'm going to set aside this time where I feel like I could be out kind of in the daily grind of life and ministry to say, I'm going to move out of the way, God. I'm going to move completely out of the way. I'm just going to allow you to work. It's funny how that, how that works. Anytime I, I, I share with another pastor across the country, 
just kind of how I'm feeling, what's going on, and what should we should do as a church. And inevitably, almost every single time, they give me all the right answer, of course, but they always say, Matt, I think you should just pray more. And I'm always like, no, 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 I'm looking for like the magic bullet here. I'm looking for the solution that's going to make this church pop and continue to plant. And they're like, Matt, you just need to slow down. You just need to pray more and just keep your head down, focus on the Lord and let God speak and let God move. As 1 Peter 5, 7 tells us, it says, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. And so once again, I don't think Peter, I don't think Paul is saying ignore that you have anxiety if you have it. And we all do at different levels by saying that we can cast those anxieties on God and remember that God cares for you. And then finally, uh, verse eight, we got two more verses, stick with me. It says, finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. And so Paul wraps up this section with these, uh, these directives to the Christian life with one long sentence. And this sentence contains two appeals. The first is he says, think about such things. So dwell on these, reflect on these. And then the second, he says, put these things into practice, these things that you've learned from Paul. And so he says, Philippian church and, and Portland church, fill your mind with these things that will inspire you to worship God and do service to others. And so Paul is here committing them to think on these ad- admirable things. Paul says, think about that which is true, not what, not what is false. Think about that which is honorable, not that what is dishonorable. Think about what's just, not just unjust. Think about what is pure, not impure. Think about what's lovely, not unlovely. Think about what's commendable, not wrong. Think about that which is morally excellent, not filthy. Think about that which is praiseworthy, not that which is same- shameful. And so Paul provides these eight parameters for our life and our thinking. And so you can jot these down if you're taking notes or, or go back and rewatch this and pause the video. But um, how might these eight filters or these eight parameters serve as a filter for what not to think in your life? Okay, that's the first question. And the second is how might these eight parameters be a prescription for what to proactively think, for what it is that you are to meditate upon in your life? I think if you thought through those things day in and day out, that would help us as we proceed forward and how it is that we function as a Christ follower individually and then our churches collectively. And then finally in verse nine, he said, what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. And so this section draws to a close with Paul reiterating his call to follow his example and teaching. And so beyond having a spiritual outlook, The Philippians are to practice what they've seen Paul doing. And as they make progress in this way, they will find it's not simply the peace of God, but the God of peace himself who will be with them. Now it says this phrase, it says, practice these things. Now, if you tell someone to go practice something, you're either assuming they already know how to do it, or you have shown them how to do it. I've been taking some guitar lessons recently. Don't worry, I'm not replacing Jacob anytime soon. But I've been taking guitar lessons recently, and um, I'll, you know, I'll spend an hour with my old neighbor, Stan, who'll show me some chords and he'll say, Matt, go practice these things because he has now shown me, he's modeled for me what it looks like, how to strum, how to play a different chord. And he'll say, now go practice these things. And so that's what Paul's doing here. Paul's saying, guys, I have modeled this for you and now I'm in prison. Now I'm reminding you of these things. Now go and live these things, practice these things. And so he thinks, he speaks of these things in which the Philippians have learned and things that he has personally instructed them in. And so he says, now go and live this out. You know this. You know how to do this. I think about the, the NFL season that's starting this morning. I started about the time that we started our service. Don't worry. I'm waiting till after to, 
to tune in to the games, but they've been practicing for weeks now. And, and now the coach is saying, okay, you've got this. Now go out and run the play. And so as a conclusion, what Paul has done here, Paul concludes by shepherding the church wisely and faithfully. He's urged the church to be united. And so church, I would, say, I would call us to that this morning. Let's be united. We are to rejoice in the Lord. We are to be gentle. We are to replace our anxiety with God's peace through prayer and to think on praiseworthy things. And so as we think on these things this morning, we should remember the hope that we have in Christ. Jesus never broke these commands, and he also solves all the problems. Christ is the reconciler. He is the gentle Savior. His salvation gives us cause to pause and to rejoice. He moved our greatest fear, and he relieves our deepest anxieties through his victorious death and resurrection. Jesus paid the penalty for those who sinned with their thoughts and with their their actions. And so today, look at your Savior, Jesus, for your righteousness. Look at Jesus for your daily renewal and look at Jesus and go and imitate him. And as you do, may the peace of God be with you. And so church, I call you to reflect on Jesus. You know, don't don't ever look to man. Don't ever look to me. Don't ever look to another spiritual leader as as the one that's going to be your ultimate Savior, yes, in some ways we can call each other to to imitate us, but we're all going to let each other down. That's the reality. We're all going to need to have those awkward conversations because we're going to make some stupid move and and be disappointed in one another. But Jesus will never do that. And so keep your focus and keep your gaze on Jesus and go and imitate Jesus. And may the God, may the peace of God wash over you, especially in the troubling times we have found ourselves in 2020. So church, I'm going to wrap up. I'm going to pray for us. And Jacob's going to come up and, and finish us with one more song and send us out. God, we thank you once again that we are able to hop online um, in, the, in the middle of this week with all the fires. God, we ask that you continue to move as we've already asked you to do. God, I ask that we would keep our, our eyes fixed on you. 2020 alone can cause a lot of anxiety. God, I think our generation is just anxiety prone and anxiety ridden from Uh, just a variety of factors. And God, as those that are in Christ, those that follow you, may we cast all our anxieties on you, all of our fears on you, all of our worries on you, and keep our eyes fixed on you. May the peace that only you can provide wash over us. And God, we ask that in your name, Jesus. Amen. Thank you so much for listening. We'd love to hear how God is working in your life. You can connect with us and find more available teachings and resources at our website, sojournpdx.org.